listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast with Portfolio Wealth Manager, International Real Estate Investor, and Global Citizen, Tiho Brakan. Join us as Tiho helps you grow your wealth, reduce your risk, and increase your freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Atlas Investor Podcast. This is episode number 17 with Tiho Burkhan. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And Tiho, before we get into episode 17, let, let's discuss uh, what you've been working on recently because we have not been able to record a podcast for quite a while. And that's not just because we're ignoring or avoiding our listeners. That's because you've actually been doing some real work. Yeah, as opposed to doing no work and traveling, right? Um, so, first of all, hello and thank you for having me back on the podcast. And um, here in Prague, excited to uh, be doing this again after, yeah, working very hard and uh, getting a lot of things done away from the financial markets. I've been very busy with some property work, some property deals here in Prague. And uh, after purchasing some real estate last year, uh, co investing with my clients. We are now in a process of renovation, and that is very time-consuming for anyone that's done that on their own house, uh, their own apartment, or even if they had an uncle who owns a development company, as my friend in Sydney does, and they've seen how difficult it is uh, getting it from a planning stage to the renovation building stage and all the way to the completion stage. So, uh, yeah. We have a decent project here. There's uh, three of us involved, and uh, I'm the one on the ground doing all the uh, all, all the uh, running all the errands, if you want to say. So, uh, yeah, it's been quite exciting at the same time too, but not a lot of time to sit down and do the podcast until today. But I'm happy to be back, Jordan. And one thing I would like to say is that we'll definitely cover uh, some of the things that I've been doing here and how some of the listeners and readers could also go about doing their own investments or they might need help. Uh, they could co contact atlasinvestor.com and get in touch with me because I'm always looking to partner up with investors in private deals as well, away from financial markets, and we'll be discussing more of what I'm doing and how I'm doing it uh, in coming episodes. So uh, I think that'll be interesting too for those that want to diversify away from financial markets. Okay, great. Now, Tiho, before we start this episode, can you please tell us what you're going to be covering today? So a basic market summary, because I've been away for a while, we're going to be looking uh, deeply into uh, stock regions of the world. Uh, there is a bit of volatility that's returned uh, over the last few months since February, uh, and that's ongoing. It's kind of spread into various other areas away from just the stock market. Uh, so we'll cover that, and we'll cover some of the reasons as to why and pinpoint some of the regions is, as to where it's happening. And... Um, you know, uh, that's always interesting uh, to cover, even though the price section is always a lot more important than the fundamental analysis, which is kind of lagging as the market likes to discount it. And uh, finally, uh, we'll be doing a summary and we're going to be introducing a new uh, section of summary where I'll be introducing my uh, benchmark index, basically an index that I track and benchmark myself against and try to outperform. This is your just a basic classic uh, stocks, bonds, credit, uh, commodities, precious metals, and a mixture of uh, everything in a classic way, uh, diversified uh, with asset class-wise and also regionally around the world. And uh, so 
it will enable us to summarize things very good by looking at how the whole world asset classes are performing, generally speaking, uh, and giving us a, um, a feel as to generally how the funds who might be using similar uh, indexes or similar strategies are performing, as well as how global investors and high net worth individuals are doing. Unless they're putting all of their eggs into one basket like US stocks, then you know there are periods when they outperform or underperform. So generally speaking, uh, that'll be a good summary, and we will do that from podcast to podcast, Jordan. So uh, shall we get into it? Okay, Tiho, so you're going to be updating us on global equity markets Let's start off with the U.S. and the S&P 500. Now, Tio, what do you make of the recent action in the S&P 500? It, it has been consolidating, but it looks like recently it's been able to, uh, or I should say, it's recently it's regained its moving averages. W- what do you make of uh, this action and what we might see going forward? Yeah, so we haven't discussed uh, this since episode number 15. At last episode number 16, we discussed interest rates and treasuries and credit and so forth. Uh, but in episode number 15, uh, I discussed the fact that most likely the correction uh, in the equity markets is over for now, and we are going to be having some kind of a relief rally. Now, this turned out to be half correct, Jordan, as we will see as we do this podcast. In particular, if you have exposure to the U.S. equities, then you can just tick me, uh, give me a tick and tick the box, and you know, and I got that right. So uh, it was my feeling that... Uh, equities around the world could have a relief rally, but clearly some regions have done better than others. And the region that's done the best is the United States uh, stock market, in particular technology stocks like FANGs, which still continue to perform very well, and small caps. They have been leading on the upside. But there are also uh, sections of the uh, US stock market, and in particular certain sectors that are not doing so well. As an example of this is Staples, which has been under pressure quite a lot as of late. Uh, but nonetheless, the U.S. stock market is around 2.5% from its all-time record high. It's still holding the three, above the three-month moving average, the 200-day moving average, the 12-month moving average, the uptrend line that's been in place since February 2016. So the bulls are still in control, but there's no new highs yet. Obviously, that could take time, and uh, we currently hit this uh, resistance level. Um, you know, during this uh, below average seasonal period, the summer lull, as we call it, uh, selling may go away. So here the seasonality doesn't tend not to work as well as it normally uh, would. But we are now at this resistance zone and we're kind of pausing here as the Federal Reserve once again hikes interest rate and turns a bit more hawkish. Um, However, looking back throughout this whole bull market, one of the things that I would like to summarize in this episode is that on an annualized basis, uh, U.S. stocks have been the better performer relative to the rest of the global regions. We've rarely seen a negative dip. I mean, I think United States stocks were down about 7% year over year in 2015-2016 uh, period. That's the worst that we've seen it when adjusted, uh, including dividends. Um, if you've held U.S. stocks since March 2009 or even since January 2009, Jordan, You've been up every single year for the last nine years. 
Uh, there's been times when the U.S. stock market was going to finish maybe down for the year, but the dividends kind of pulled through. I think one of those was 2011 and the other one was 2015. Both of those were not good years, especially since we've had Eurozone crisis in 2011 and emerging market crisis in 2015, in particular China devaluation. But most of those periods did not affect the United States stock market, uh, which has had a, a terrific time. And I think over the last uh, decade or so, we are looking at a 14% uh, percent, uh, annualized uh, period, especially as we start to look from uh, October or November 2008 towards October or November 2018. That decade-long period, the annualized performance day is going to look Fabulous. So if you bought like Warren Buffett did 10 years ago, you're in a very good position uh, with your portfolio right now. And I congratulate you. Okay, Tio. Now, you, you mentioned some areas are performing better than others. And you, you mentioned that uh, this recent strength has been led by the tech stocks. I want to get your thoughts on what's going on with the FANG stocks, because at the end of last year, I don't remember which podcast number it was but you were you warned about the fang stocks which are really overheating now you were right and they corrected along with the market but now they're recovering again and even leading it looks like now does their performance tell you anything about the overall market and where we could be in the cycle what are your thoughts on that and if there's any other insights you have that the listeners should take away from the the strength in the fang stocks sure well there's a great chart published by Double Line, by Jeffrey Gunlock recently uh, in his uh, own uh, webcast, not a podcast. Uh, and he discussed the fact that um, Dow Jones e-commerce index, which is basically the FANG stocks, is up by more than six times. And it's the third largest bubble in the past uh, several decades. Uh, and comparing it to Europe or India or China or relative, uh, relatively speaking, comparing it to any other sector of the world, a handful of these companies, uh, you know, uh, uh, have a higher market cap than anywhere else. One thing that's interesting about this chart that we're looking at is that every generation and every decade has its own bubble. And, and of course, over the last decade or so, it's really been e-commerce. I mean, you can even throw biotech until the healthcare reforms and some bureaucratic uh, laws were passed through. Uh, putting a lot more pressure on healthcare and biotech in 2015 and 2016 um, with tighter regulations and so forth. But the e-commerce space still continues to go uh, very, very hard. Uh, so clearly we are having a, a bubble here. And uh, that doesn't mean when I say it's a bubble that you go out and you short it or you tell everybody it's a bubble. Uh, what that means is that these things can run and they can run very hard and very fast. And eventually, uh, all bubbles, including Bitcoin and uh, Litecoin, Jordan, they do come to an end and they do have some kind of a crash. The U.S. stock market is very much dependent on these leaders. So whenever they stop rising, whenever their earnings stop performing, uh, or whenever some kind of restrictions or bureaucratic regulations come on against these companies or something happens in the, in the tax world to change the way that they report their taxes or you know, just the general economy slows down. Uh, these stocks tend to move down just as much as they moved up. So that you know, we saw in the in the after the late '90s bubble, some of these stocks, including Amazon, they were down by 90 percent 
uh, 80% from their all-time highs. So the crashes can be extremely severe. Um, so yes, this space is extremely expensive and overextended, but that doesn't mean that in future podcasts we won't be talking about it again as it gets up even higher. This could be the bubble that tops all previous ones, uh, and we'll keep a track on this one. It's very, very interesting. Absolutely. Now, moving on from that, let's talk about foreign stocks and, and first foreign developed markets. Can you discuss the recent action in this group as compared to the U.S.? So also in an uptrend, as we discussed previously with the United States, uh, having said that oh, since the February 9th low, very much a sideways trend, uh, barely above some of the shorter term moving averages, still kind of holding up to the uptrend line and uh, hanging in there. But one of the things uh, that's interesting about this index, in particular, the major part of this index comes from Europe, is the fact that Eurozone index does not have a lot of tech stocks, Jordan. So from that aspect, if e-commerce is really the bubble of the current trend, it's really pushing the indices higher. Uh, one of the things that we can notice in, with European stocks is they lack that those components within the overall indices. And therefore, um, maybe uh, international developed markets would be doing just as good or maybe quite similar to the United States if they had their own version of FANGs, uh, but they really don't. Um, so unfortunately, it's not helping developed markets in this case outside of the United States, and they seem to be lagging. Uh, the strong dollar is also putting pressure on them, as we'll discuss later, but the lack of tech stocks here is showing it in the index and the rest of the, you know, the financials and the real estate and the staples. Uh, yeah, they're not performing as well, as I've said. So, uh, you know, we, we have uh, leadership from small caps in the United States and globally from tech stocks, and it's not helping this area uh, and this region of the world. Okay, a lack of tech stocks and a strong dollar. Thank you for that. Now, moving on, or, or excuse me, I should say sticking with the strong dollar, Let's talk about emerging markets, your, your favorite equity group. Um, but Tio, if we look at the EEM ETF, emerging markets have been underperforming. They're still below their three-month moving average, while U.S. stocks, as we already noted, they've regained all the key moving averages. So is there any other reason why emerging markets are performing other than this rebound in the dollar? And, and do you expect their current underperformance to continue or change? Well, we'll get into the reasons later, and we'll discuss that for sure. Uh, but what I would like to say is that, yes, my favorite uh, part of the portfolio to allocate towards shares, but clearly not so not so good, uh, despite my favoritism as of late. Uh, the one thing that we should keep in mind is that uh, from January 2016, emerging markets did bottom one month earlier than S&P 500. From January 2016, this stock market uh, region led the world gains. And I think at one point in time, it was up almost 90% from that low. So it's only normal to see what we're seeing here. And the dollar was so weak uh, in 2017, uh, and it's been weakening since December 2016. So it's only normal to see the dollar rebound and for it to go through a short squeeze after so many people piled on on the short side, in particular jumped on on the long side with the euro. Um, so what's happening right now is normal, and what we're seeing in emerging markets is a mean reversion back to the trend or the trend line in some way, 
or the 12-month moving average or the 200-day moving average. So that's normal. I mean, at the moment, emerging markets are not acting as if there's going to be some kind of a major crisis. Um, but, you know, anything is possible. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that over the long term, emerging markets have broken above their 2007, 2011, and 2014 highs. Uh, so we had this lost decade, and we've seen a you know a proper meaningful strong attempt at the break, and we just went straight through it. We sliced it and diced it, as you would say, and we're holding above that line, and we are retracing back to it. Uh, it's only normal. Having said that, U.S. continues to outperform in emerging markets in the equity space on a relative basis and a relative strength. So uh, they're not doing all that well at the moment, and the dollar is not helping. Uh, there's a variety of other reasons why emerging market contagion is going on, um, and we'll discuss those uh, in the next section. Tiho, now you are going to cover the things that have been happening around the world, some negative things, maybe the things that aren't always front and center in the headlines in the West, uh, some, some things that are happening under the surface, some things we should definitely keep our eyes on. And first, you want to talk about bond yields in Italy. So um, bond yields in Italy have surged in recent weeks. What What does this imply, in your opinion, for conventional markets and if bond yields in Italy continue to rise then what markets would be most affected in the future well you know first and foremost this is something that's been in the headlines uh, and kind of shook the market a couple of weeks ago so it's a great start of a discussion to open up a conversation here uh, you know since we peaked in in January 2018, there's been a variety of things that's brought back volatility from the lulls of 2017, which was the second least volatile year and the second least drawdown on an annual basis since 1995. Those two years stand out as just the most peaceful, record-breaking, super gain, uh, great performance years, you know, uh, just making the U.S. stock market great again, basically. That's what 2017 was. 2018… Uh, not so much. So clearly now the recent issues that are popping up is Italy, but it's always been Southern Europe. It's been Greece. Maybe we're kind of tired of Greece for a while and uh, we just know every all the bad news and it just doesn't worry investors all that much. But Italy and the Deutsche Bank saga, uh, there's also Portugal and Spain involved, even though they're not kind of uh, you know on the front headlines of the newspapers right now. Uh, basically, you know, we've artificially suppressed some of these countries uh, bond yields, in particular uh, southern states of Eurozone. And uh, this is ECB's uh, Mario Draghi bond buying program that's artificially suppressing these interest rates. And they're trying to kind of find their normal levels back, Jordan, in my opinion. And, you know, every time there's a catalyst for it, the market moves the needle towards, a, you know, some kind of a mean reversion. Uh, and then these kind of stories in the press are used as catalysts. But clearly, uh, Italian 10-year government bonds had no business trading at 1.5% yield while the United States was approaching 3%. I mean, you cannot tell me that the United States with a reserve, uh, world's reserve currency is more riskier and should be yielding more uh, you know, than the Italian 
government bonds. There should be a premium for uh, for some of these relative to the reserve currency. Sure, there could be a case made in some ways that uh, U.S. has better growth and therefore requires higher interest rates and so forth. Uh, but I, you know, in my opinion, it's all to do with artificial stimulus from ECB. If you let these interest rates find their own normal levels, I'm pretty sure Italian debt will be trading at a lot higher levels than it is right now. But that's one of the things that shook up the markets recently. Moving along, things have been pretty bad in Turkey, and this is affecting emerging markets. So we got Turkey, we got Indonesia, we got Mexico, we got Argentina, uh, we got Philippines. Um, you know, you name it, we got it. We got Brazil as well. So uh, a handful of these um, emerging markets, some of them have borrowed a lot in U.S. denominated or Euro denominated uh, currencies. So therefore. They have issues with paying off their debt. As their local currencies weaken, uh, the debt servicing factor comes in. And uh, obviously, this has been happening with the lira for a while now. We've seen it sink to two and a half, then three over the years, then three and a half, then four. We're going for over four and a half recently, almost touching five. So the lira has been kind of in a waterfall crash here. And this is putting pressure on all kinds of Turkish assets, including real estate in Istanbul as well as, let's say, the MACI Turkey, which priced in U.S. dollars. That's trading at single-digit CAPE and priced a book that's very, very attractive right now. But what can you do, despite the fact that its uh, expected return in the future will be great, I think, eventually when it bottoms? The current weakness in the lira and the continued weakness in the lira is continues to put pressure on, on some of these assets. Uh, and part of the contagion also we have down in Latin America, with the uh, Brazilian stock market nosediving in recent weeks, uh, and the whole Latin American index down something like 14% uh, in, in a short period of time, um, which is very, very interesting. Uh, Argentina is in the headlines again. They've borrowed a lot of U.S. dollars, and they've issued these century bonds, uh, I think, which was a mistake in my opinion. Uh, definitely for the investors who bought these bonds, it was a mistake. Uh, but... Yeah, and the IMF is now doing them another credit line by the looks of it, and they're asking for the peso to devalue further. I mean, I have a very um, interesting person that I uh, tend to have some dinners with here in Prague from time to time, and he has investments in Argentina. And we, I remember us sitting a month ago at the dinner table having a nice meal in the center of Prague, and he was saying to me, so where's the peso at now? Because he hasn't visited Argentina recently, and he said, uh, 22, 23. I said, no, it's a 26. And he said 26, <laughs> yeah, so looks like it's going to be going towards 30 or higher. Um, so a strong devaluation of the currency there as the currency tries to find its natural normal floor without the peg. And I think in the long term, that's healthy, what's happening in Argentina. But the, it's a period uh, of adjustment, and through this adjustment, there's pain. Uh, and naturally, that's happening in Indonesia and a lot of other places as well, Mexico too, and Brazil and therefore the, the stock markets priced in U.S. dollars are being affected. Um, generally speaking, Jordan, this all links to the U.S. dollar, really. Yes, and that, that was my next question, because what's going to happen in the dollar over the next, you know, over the coming months and over the next year or so? It seems very crucial and critical to various markets. And I guess the, the question is, I mean, are, is the dollar – is this just a bear market rally or is this the start of a bigger move higher? And I mean, p people have various opinions on that. And I'd love to get, I mean, I know 
you don't like to give your opinion. You just like to, to watch the market and anticipate what's going to happen. But give us some insight on that and, and what you see in, in the dollar here and now. Well, one of the reasons that I don't really muck around with Mr. Market because Mr. Market has taught me some lessons. There is a handful of uh, investors out there that write newsletters and uh, kind of pretend that they're investing, but it's not real money. Uh, so they, uh, from time to time, they find this whole uh, fun factor about, you know, trying to predict what's around the corner and trying to guess how the macro puzzle falls into place as if they're, you know, George Soros and Stanley Druckenmiller, uh, you know, at the table in the 1980s with the trousers and the suspenders trying to figure out how the global markets will move. It's, there's some kind of romanticism to all that. But I have to admit, when real money is involved, the only romanticism I have is with my girlfriend. I rather keep the risk management very tight in this regard. So, uh, you know, uh, from, yeah, so from that aspect, I don't like to muck around with the markets and try to make predictions, which people would quote you on, and then come back six months later and say, well, that didn't work out the way it is. And I usually say, well, I had a stop loss. Uh, you know, and because I had a stop loss, I didn't really lose what you lost. And that's the difficult part about it. Uh, but coming back onto the currencies, I would say it's not all about the U.S. dollar. Uh, first of all, the U.S. dollar is currently rallying very strongly. And yes, we are in a short squeeze, especially against the euro, where we had this huge buildup in positions. Uh, so the dollar, I think, still has a bit of a rebound left, uh, you know, because we haven't even squeezed all the shorts. There's still some shorts left. I think it still might take some weeks or some months. So uh, this is natural after do dollar having a horrific 2017 and the last 18 months wasn't very good. But I have to say that the dollar is not all that fabulous of a currency despite having a bull market uh, against euro or the pound over the last 10 years. If you have a look at the dollar against the Swiss franc, Jordan, it is not actually performing all that well. Uh, despite the fact that the dollar is doing really good against the yen and the pound and the euro and the Aussie dollar and so forth. But the Swiss franc has held its own. Another one that I would like to mention is the Singapore dollar and the Korean won. Uh, both of those countries have pretty good fundamentals. And, you know, if the U.S. dollar bottomed in 2008, uh, it's lower against all three of those that I mentioned right now. Uh, Korean won, it's kind of a little bit higher, but Korean won hasn't fallen at all since uh let's say 2014 when the dollar had a very big rally in 2015 and, and onwards so uh there's a handful of other currencies too including the chinese yuan that's been very very strong uh the thai baht has not been weak at all since 2008 bottom for the u.s dollar as a matter of fact the thai baht is holding its own in a, in a nice peaceful and moderate range of course there's other currencies like the indian rupee and the filipino peso uh, Indonesian rupiah uh, that have been quite weak since 2008, including Vietnamese dong, where I spent a lot of time looking at investments. And Latin American area is always bad. Brazilian real and Mexican peso are always getting devalued. Um, but there's a handful of currencies, including ones in Europe, uh, where I'm doing some investments now. And you can see fundamentals coming through in places like Czech uh, Republic with Czech krona. It's quite strong on a relative basis to the U.S. dollar. And also, I think the Israeli currency has barely nudged since the U.S. dollar started a bull market in 2008. So very, very strong. Uh, so I would have to say that it comes down to fundamentals. And not every currency is falling apart, as the media would make it sound to be. And therefore, this is why the Emerging Market Index is not correcting all that much. 
I would like to say that if you look at the Taiwanese dollar, the Chinese yuan, and also the South Korean won, as well as their stock markets, these three countries in Asia make up about 50% of the emerging market ETF. And they are actually outperforming rest of Latin America and Africa and, uh, you know, Middle East and all kinds of problems with, that we are having everywhere with these currencies falling apart. So, you know, generally speaking, half of EM is kind of holding up pretty well. Um, so from that aspect, it's not all about the dollar. But nevertheless, if the dollar rally intensifies against all of those currencies that I managed uh, and to discuss here, then, of course, you will have more pressure. And I guarantee you, you won't only have pressure in emerging market equities, you'll have pressure around the world because sharp U.S. dollar rallies tend to put pressure on forward earnings per share and revenue per share. So uh, don't make a mistake about that. At least 50% of revenue for United States companies comes from abroad these days. So the dollar is a key indicator to watch, Jordan. Okay, I just have a quick follow follow up on that. I know you're you're not a big fan of targets, but what 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 kind of level do you think the dollar index would have to go to where it starts creating issues uh, around the world and not just in emerging markets? I mean, with this it, it, the recent rally, I believe it topped out uh, just a tick or two below ninety five. I mean, would the dollar have to? go up to that old high around 103 for that to happen? Or, I mean, what, what's your sense of how much higher the dollar would have to go um, before the, the issues uh, that it causes start to be magnified? Sure. Well, one of the ways that I would answer that without a target, and I'm clearly I'm pulling myself away from making a prediction here, um, is that when the dollar starts to gain a lot of momentum based on year over year, percentage return. So if the dollar is up a lot a year from now, that will start to affect things in, in a dramatic way. You will see South Korean exports down. You'll see semiconductors struggling. You'll see energy stocks, material stocks struggling. You'll see commodities, precious metals, miners uh, not doing all that well. Uh, you know, And you will see various uh, international stocks away from United States, and in particular tech uh, and staples, uh, probably have some pressure there. Um, and other asset classes will also be affected too. Uh, so if the dollar is up year over year, it tends to put pressure on uh, company uh, profit and loss statements too. So earnings reports might be a little bit different as the way that they are kind of expected to be right now, where everyone thinks that earnings will continue to grow very strongly, Jordan. So that's the way that I would answer it. Okay, very good. So, so follow the annual rate of change. Um, okay, Tio. Now, moving on, uh, just a couple other things we should discuss. Let's talk about interest rates and specifically the ten-year and the thirty-year yields, which have corrected. It looks like after testing major resistance, but it hasn't been that big of a correction. And as you recall, this is something we covered, as you noted, I believe, in uh, the last episode, episode number sixteen. So, I mean, are we closer to a breakout here in these long-term bond yields, or do we need to see more bearish positions unwound? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. We have a lot of bearish positions unwound, and the reason we have this chart here is to show that the short-term rates um, have been even moved up as of the last two days as we're doing this podcast with the Fed meetings just finished. So the Fed is now at 2%. And generally speaking, the yield curve is really, really narrowing and flattening. 
so therefore, we're getting close to inversion, which is, tends to be a warning signal for economic growth to uh, start to stall. Um, as interest rates have risen, same fashion as the US dollar has risen, this is obviously putting pressure on emerging markets, in particular the Argentinas and the Mexicos, uh, you know, and the Turkeys that have borrowed in uh, other currencies rather than their own local currency. Um, so interest rates also very important to watch. Uh, the 30-year failed to move above 3.25, which is something that we discussed in the last podcast episode 16, and it kind of held there. We were about to break, and as we, it was looking like the yields were ready to move up, and I think the 10-year actually crossed over 3%, which was kind of like the magic number the media has been watching. Uh, there's been a refusal to move above that on the first go, and in particular, that whole issue occurred around the Italian a catalyst, and as soon as Italian uh, bonds collapsed and their yield spike, everybody moved very quickly into treasuries, and the spread between the Italian yields and the U.S. yields uh, started to converge uh, in favor of the U.S., uh, and clearly it should, as I was discussing above. Um, so, yeah, uh, very, very interesting here. We have very low sentiment on bonds, and we have some kind of technical divergences now, and there doesn't seem to be a follow-through. So, I am also wondering whether we're going to have a short squeeze rally. And we're definitely set up for one, Jordan. So I'm watching the space very closely. And I am actually, I basically have my finger on the trigger. So in case we get some interesting developments happening with the price uh, in a technical way, I am looking at positioning and I'm looking at a potential for a short covering rally. And, um, you know, generally speaking, everybody's kind of hawkish now. Everyone's expecting four rate hikes this year, two already done, and quite possibly four next year. Um, so a lot of this is getting priced into the market, and we will see if the bonds want to go lower. Uh, after the Fed meeting, we're having a rebound in the bonds right now, so it's very interesting. Uh, and the 3.25% uh, level, resistance level, on the 30-year U.S. Treasury bond is holding for now, and the 3% is uh, give or take. It's holding for the 10-year uh, too. But the five-year is now catching up and the two-year is catching up. So as I said, the yield curve, uh, you know, it's really, really flattening. So if the long-term rates don't want to move up and the Fed continues to press the short-term rates, pedal to the metal, we will get an inversion very soon. And that could signal a recession and possibly a stock bear market. So something really to keep an eye on, Jordan. Very interesting setup as we... Uh, moving into the second quarter of 2018 and the beginning of 2019. Really, really watching this. Yes, absolutely. And and, and that's actually why I want to ask you a follow-up question, if you don't mind. So let's just assume that the yield curve becomes inverted. Now, what what assets or markets do you think would perform best? Um, not so much in the long term after an inversion, but what, like, as soon as the yield curve inverts, historically, what assets or sectors or markets tend to perform best upon uh, that inversion and then, you know, over the next couple quarters after that? So I think stocks might be the surprising answer to everybody, but I think credit will start to underperform. We tend to have a divergence between credit spreads and the equity prices at the late cycle prior to recession. So as you have a yield curve inversion, stocks tend to sometimes, not, all, not always, but often they tend to enter a bubble mania stage. 
and sometimes they don't, of course. Like in uh, uh, various periods uh, throughout the last, let's say, 70 years or so, historical data, where we can trust the yield curve a bit more. But stocks tend to do very, very well. And it's about the time when the yield curve goes from inversion back towards steepening, then a recession starts. That's when it becomes obvious to the stock market, the Fed, and all the investors that they've overcooked it. They cook the goose that lays the golden eggs. And, uh, you know, it's time to start uh, loosening monetary policy. And, you know, usually on the Wall Street, the initial cuts in interest rate, as we saw them in 2017, are perceived to be bullish. But that can be further from the truth. It's too late to, to save the the bubble, especially that we just talked about, the e-commerce bubble uh, and various overvaluations in the stock market that we've discussed in various podcasts before here uh, with the price-to-book, CAPE ratio, uh, price-to-sales ratio, some of them exceeding 1929, some of them exceeding the year 2000 and so forth. We enter a period of mean reversion. So credit tends to, my answer is credit tends to underperform at the beginning as the yield curve gets inverted and I think treasuries will start to outperform other fixed income and they also try to find some kind of a flaw because at that point in time the Fed uh, start, stops hiking and some initial um, sections of the economy start to slow and then it becomes more and more apparent that the Fed uh, was hiking too fast for the economy to handle it and they broke something within the system, usually leads to a recession. Uh, stocks can still ignore this. Investors tend to uh, lose their minds at the end of the cycle. And one thing that I would like to mention is that I, I believe the Nasdaq went up something like three times uh, from mid-90s into 1998. Uh, and then it quadrupled from 1998 to, to March 2000. So uh, I'm not saying that that's going to happen again, but definitely is, uh, there's a possibility to have a blow off top in the bull market. No doubt about that. Um, and then finally, as the Fed starts to loosen and the yield curve goes from inversion towards deepening, you probably want to own treasury bonds at that point in time. And also you might consider owning gold, um, you know, but it very much depends on what happens in this recession or whether the U.S. dollar will also rally hard and put precious metals and commodities under pressure or whether the U.S. dollar will start to lose its yield advantage over other economies like Japan and Eurozone and emerging markets. And at that point in time, uh, the dollar could start falling and gold could start rallying. So, you know, we will be discussing these developments as they happen. But I'd say, you know, there's a potential for stocks to still do well. Not that I'm telling you to go out and buy a truckload of them right now, but uh, something to keep in mind. Don't get bearish just because the yield curve is flattening and we're coming towards a recession. Uh, because the last blow of top, even if it lasts three to six months, it can be magnificent. Yes, and uh, thank you for that great detailed answer. I, and I'm sure the listeners, really appreciate it. Now, Tiho, one more thing. Uh, it, it, you, you mentioned uh, credit. Uh, so let's talk about uh, credit and what's happening around the globe. Um, one question I had, why are investment grade in emerging market credit spreads widening a bit, yet junk bond spreads are, are not widening? Because junk bonds are the new safe haven, Jordan. Uh, and we saw something similar in 2017. I mean, uh, we saw emerging market credit spreads kind of 
trend sideways at the beginning of 2017. And we saw investment grade start to spike up a little bit in February of 2007, not 2017, my, my mistake there. So uh, during the end of the last cycle, prior to the recession, we saw junk bond investors like totally oblivious to what was going on in subprime and ignoring it. But then they paid the price because the mean reversion in the opposite direction was swift and fast. And it ended up uh, killing a lot of funds and a lot of investors. Uh, so right now, uh, basically, junk bonds, and I mentioned this in our previous podcast, junk bonds are not only outperforming equities. They're outperforming the whole fixed income space. And I think maybe only commodities are doing a little bit better than them. But even commodities have now started to uh, react to the downside with gold and oil having a recent correction. So junk bonds are the new safe haven. Uh, one thing that we just discussed in the previous question, which was great, I think, is what to hold and what not to hold as the yield curve gets towards uh, inversion and, and uh, the spread between the twos and the tens, let's say, or the fives and the thirties goes negative. Uh, and that's definitely not credit, in my opinion. Uh, it usually tends to weaken first. And we're already seeing a little bit of an uptick in the spreads. Hard to say whether this is the start of something more, you know, important to watch. Uh, I would like to mention that credit investors or bond investors, as they would like to call themselves, they're not smarter than equity investors. They always try to say uh, bond investors sniff out troubles a lot earlier than equity investors. Actually, they're too early in the, in the investment game, if you ask me. Yes, they figure out the problem earlier, but the equity trend is still uh, moving upwards. And as long as trend is your friend, you got to stay with the trade and you can make a lot of money, especially in the final parts of the bull market. So if we look at the history prior to 2007 uh, cycle, the previous one was 1997. That's where credit spreads troughed. And we had the start of the Asian financial crisis followed by the Russian default and the uh, Asian flu crisis. And then we had the period of tech crash and the global recession, as well as Argentina defaulting in 2001 and all kinds of, um, I think, U.S. corporate bankruptcies and accounting scandals in 2002. Um, so credit spreads kept widening the whole way through that. But obviously, credit investors were way too early because the U.S. stock market peaked in 2000, not in 1997. So just keep that in mind. Sometimes credit spreads are a good warning indicator, but sometimes they're too early. But it's good to keep an eye on them because if they start to diverge uh, relative to the equity market, there's definitely something wrong. And then it's, uh, you know, there is basically a ticking tie bomb in the equity market. It's just a matter of time before it rolls over also. Okay, Tiho, you've done a great job today giving us an update on what's going on in the various global capital markets. But before we sign off here, one thing I'd like you to talk about is the Atlas Investor Benchmark Index and uh, why we're going to uh, continue to discuss that at the end of every podcast and may maybe what it's comprised of. I don't want you to give away all your details, but just give us an information on how you constructed this and, and why you follow it. So basically, this is a good way to analyze what's happening in the global asset markets, especially if it's constructed in a way that it's not U.S. centric, but 
globally diversified, properly exposed to all regions uh, and, uh, you know, to all asset classes too, all industries and all sectors. So this is a benchmark that I use to track my performance against on a relative basis and I try to outperform this performance. It's a simple mix of uh, stocks, REITs, uh, government bonds all around the world, credit all around the world, uh, commodities, um, precious metals and other kind of alternative assets like infrastructure and so forth. Uh, and what you have here is a basic representation of what's happening for majority of the funds. It kind of follows the 60-40 to a degree as well, but it has periods of outperformance and underperformance against it because it's not all that similar. And it's a diversified portfolio that a lot of the investors, as Ray Dalio says always, should be using because it's too difficult to just try to play the game of poker against these funds and traders who are so skillful and so good at what they do that they will probably every time you put your money on the table, you'll leave empty handed. So it's good to have a, a basic strategy. Um, so basically, when we discussed in this podcast, all kinds of asset classes and all kinds of reasons volatility has recently uh, risen and it's giving uh, various troubles to investors. And if we have a look at the asset uh, class performance of this portfolio, basically the Atlas Investor Benchmark Index, since February 9th bottom, when we had the VIX spike, we've just gone sideways. So various asset classes have done okay and others have not done all that well. So generally speaking, the performance has been flat and there hasn't been a lot of money to be made. Uh, and we've kind of been chopping around in a very strange format. Like US equities are kind of lifting uh, some of the uh, index towards the upside and various other asset classes are pushing it towards the downside. Um, the one final thing I would like to say is that despite the fact that this benchmark of diversified portfolio uh, benchmark that we're looking at here is sitting on a 12-month moving average as well as the trend line support, one thing that's interesting is that it hasn't, have a, hasn't had a 9% correction in more than two years. We're approaching 130 weeks now. Why did I choose 9%? Because 9% is about the drawdown that you would get on average. It's about between one to two standard deviations of the historical drawdown when I backtested this portfolio going back about 50, 60 years. And uh, that's about a normal run-of-the-mill crisis correction that you would get, whether recently it was the Eurozone debt crisis or the taper tantrum or the emerging market slowdown and China crash, which kind of went towards uh, 17%. Uh, some of them tend to be a little bit less, like 6% or 7% in trade war, recent trade war correction and the U.S. elections during Donald Trump. Uh, so we haven't had this correction of 9% in a long time now. And uh, I think we eventually have a mean reversion, and as we always do. And it's just a matter of time, I think, until this indicator triggers. So the question is, what will push this index lower? Will it be the treasury bonds that, that go lower? Will it be credit? Uh, will it be commodities and gold? Will it be some other alternative assets or will it be equities and real estate and REITs? So, uh, or will it be all of them together? So it remains to be seen. But this is something that I don't want to uh, drag on too much about in this podcast, but definitely something that we'll be discussing more and we'll have some fabulous indicators around this global diversified portfolio so everyone can kind of follow it. Absolutely, Tio. Thank you so much for that. And finally, before I let you go, please tell us what you'd like to cover in episode number 18. 
Well, we are overdue to cover uh, Vietnam, and uh, I think we'll be focusing on that country. Uh, it's in 2017 and 2016, I spent at least, I believe, 12 months or more uh, over those two years in the country looking for investments, looking at real estate and uh, the stock market and various companies and doing on the ground research, uh, getting connections with the uh, lawyers and builders and uh, developers and so forth. So it was a very interesting period for me. Uh, and real estate agents, if I haven't mentioned, because I know a few of them are actually listening to this podcast. And I, if I did mention it, I better mention it again, because uh, shout out in regards to them, they know who they are. Um, so yeah, I'll be discussing Vietnam and we'll talk about all the great prospects this country has for the future, Jordan, um, and also all the risks that it carries as other frontier markets do, where the common boom bust cycles are very, very common and, uh, and often occur when you least expect. Close, we want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. If you have a moment, please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. We would really appreciate it. And if you have a question for Tiho or any comments or suggestions for us, you can email them to podcast at theatlasinvestor.com. That's podcast at theatlasinvestor.com. On behalf of Tiho Burkan, thanks for listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast. We hope you will join us again for episode number 18. Thank you for listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast. To be notified of future podcast episodes, visit theatlasinvestor.com and sign up for our free newsletter. T. Hober Khan offers his clients a wide range of services, including portfolio construction and wealth management, one-on-one -on -one consultations, global real estate opportunities, international tax planning, citizenship and residency planning, and one-on-one -on -one mentoring. For a free consultation, visit theatlasinvestor.com and contact T. Hope Rakan.